Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Berg. Tonight, I think we've all become savvier grocery shoppers over the past few years just because of the higher price of food. But there's a new one to watch out for. You've heard about shrinkflation, right? That's when those packages, there's just fewer and fewer things in those packages that you buy. But how about skimpflation? That's when food producers change the ingredients in their products to cut costs. We're going to find out all you need to know about this skimpflation thing. A prison escape in London, England by a former British soldier awaiting trial on terrorism-related charges has experts wondering aloud about how there could have been such a devastating series of security lapses. Daniel Khalif, he's 21, he's been recaptured, but the former head of security of the jail he escaped from joins me to talk about a litany of mistakes made and how they could have happened. But first, the rescue effort continues in Morocco after a devastating earthquake struck that country late Friday. Uh, There have been nearly 3,000 people killed. That death toll is expected to go up significantly with many people unaccounted for, many more injured. We talked to a search and rescue expert about the many challenges rescuers face, but we begin in Marrakesh, that age-old UNESCO heritage site not far from the epicenter of this earthquake, where a delegation of Canadians uh, was attending a UNESCO conference on Friday there when the quake hit. So we get a first-hand account of the quake, what it was like to live through it, and the aftermath from Bonavista, Newfoundland's Mayor, John Norman. We're going to begin tonight at another major emergency, a search and rescue operation that's taking place tonight in Morocco and has been since late Friday. Rescuers still searching through the rubble, trying to reach some very isolated communities after that devastating quake, 6.8 on the Richter scale. Uh, Thousands have already been killed. More are injured. Many are unaccounted for. The quake is the strongest to hit uh, the nation in more than a century, and its epicenter was not far from the popular tourist and economic hub of Marrakesh. Uh, Again, it struck around 11 11 p.m. local time, so 6.11 p.m. Eastern, 3.11 p.m. Pacific on Friday, and it was high up in the Atlas Mountain Range was the epicenter that are about 72 kilometers southwest of Marrakesh. Building after building completely destroyed. People in this village are telling us it's simply not clear at the moment how many people in this tight-knit community were killed. This mountainous area is remote. It's hard to access. We've seen helicopters flying overhead. We've seen ambulances going down the road. The roads further on, we tried to access more remote areas. We only saw one village. It was just too slow on those roads to get very far. Uh, that is an ABC reporter, Tom Sufi Burridge, in uh, Morocco tonight. Now, again, uh, Morocco is not has had earthquakes in the past, but nothing like this. I mean, few have been so powerful. Uh, the deadliest was back in 1960 when more than 12,000 people were killed. There were Canadians there in Marrakesh on Friday night, including a contingent of about a dozen people who were at a um, UNESCO conference. All are safe and sound, uh, but one of them was uh, the mayor of Bonavista, Newfoundland. Uh, they'd been there to witness uh, the disaster and the aftermath, obviously. They were even meant to leave on a tour of the Atlas Mountains, the epicenter of that quake, the very next morning, because they were there essentially looking into geological and and natural threats. So joining me now is John Norman. He's the mayor of Bonavista, Newfoundland. He's a long way from home tonight in Marrakesh in Morocco. John, thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about the situation today. I mean, I think we're getting a better idea of the scope of this disaster. um, And I gather there's been a lot of mobilization to try to try to help. There has been. You can see that in the streets. We've been uh, allowed outside our hotel since late yesterday. 
uh, before we were advised not to leave the gated area. And you can see army vehicles, uh, large groups, relief workers, uh, there are donation sites uh, just outside our hotel, uh, front and back in the in the city block, which uh, our hotel compound occupies. And uh, people are dropping off water, clothes, blankets, food items, uh, really anything you can imagine. Right. There was a blood drive, I gather, going on as well, because that's been that's obviously been something that they've been asking for. Yes. Yeah, that began almost immediately at our um, Geoparks UNESCO conference. So they uh, set it up basically in, in the lobby of the conference center. And, of course, the conference schedule changed uh, drastically once the earthquake occurred. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it, you, that's what you were there for. Take me back to Friday night because, I mean, this happened quite late. It was after 11 p.m. Um, yeah, uh, what, how, how, yeah. How did how did it how how did you experience it? Uh, well, we had a very busy conference day. Uh, it was the uh, third day of our conference. And funny enough, it is a UNESCO Global Geoparks Conference. So this was a meeting of uh, those involved predominantly with the Earth Sciences from over 50 countries around the world that are associated with uh, UNESCO Global Geoparks, of which I'm part of the 10 uh, persons that made up the Canadian delegation. Mm -hmm. And at such an Earth Science Conference, you're talking about geohazards and earthquakes were in the uh, itinerary for the two days uh, leading up to the event. We went out that evening with members of the Canadian delegation for supper. Um, we went out and walked around the old Medina and the old city centre, walked beneath some of the minarets that today no longer exist. Um, and we were only back at our hotel safe and sound for about uh, 25 or 30 minutes and just getting ready for bed when uh, you heard the rumble and and just some slight movement and i specifically picked the hotel where my partner and i were staying based on earthquakes because i'm that type of nerd wow. and it's only a two-story modern construction building with no large tall buildings around it and i looked at him and said this isn't we're having an earthquake and then as i was saying that the major jolt started and dust started falling from the ceiling. The plaster would crack. Light fixtures in the bathroom fell to the floor and into the sink. And I said, okay, we're leaving. And we uh, hopped out in barely nothing uh, and, and got out into the gardens next to the, next to the pool. <laughs> Hard times for us from coming from the West. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, lucky, uh, very lucky of where we were positioned uh, that night. All the rest of the Canadian delegation besides us was staying in a different hotel about a block away. And they were in the streets and they were in the street all night. And their hotel did uh, have some damage and cracks and so on. So they weren't allowed back yet. John, had you ever experienced an earthquake, especially one of that magnitude before? I mean, have you ever experienced an earthquake, period? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've experienced earthquakes. I've climbed active volcanoes, right. however foolish that may sound, hurricanes, tornadoes. Yes, natural disasters and geohazards are actually an interest of mine, and uh, geophysics and geomorphology is my academic background. Right. Uh, but 
so you knew so you knew what that was it didn't take you long to figure out that 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 what was happening (laughs) wasn't wasn't some sort of explosion that this was in fact an earthquake i i knew it was a very low chance of this part of morocco less than two percent of having a major earthquake uh but i do know that we're near fault lines uh whenever i am in vancouver or california or certain parts of the world and i know i was in japan singapore indonesia uh, sometimes conferences, sometimes vacations. I am a bit selective on where I stay. And as I said, very lucky in this case, because it was a very high magnitude quake. And there were other members from other delegates, delegations uh, from Germany and other countries that were attending the conference. Their riads and, and, and their hotels were significantly damaged. Some of them partially collapsed and they crawled out through rubble. Uh, so I count myself very lucky and privileged on, on where we were when this exactly happened. Yeah. And more so for the fact that we were leaving the conference the next day, we were going to be supposed to be starting our field mission for two days, 400 of us in the Atlas mountains in villages that no longer exist. Wow. Right, right where the epicenter was, is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And I mean, even now, Marrakesh must be a city changed, unfortunately. Yes, I'm. I'm not long back. You're you're out in the streets now. The stores are open. Some of the restaurants have reopened, and there's tourists around. Uh, we just left the uh, old city center uh, for the first time since the earthquake. We've entered that far into the city and uh, took a look at well, basically before and afters because we had photos of ourselves and people in our group that late that evening, uh, four and five hours before the earthquake and the landscape has changed a very unfortunate, obviously lives lost, but also mm-hmm. historic UNESCO inscribed infrastructure, the old city walls, some of the minarets collapsed. And then the villages within the UNESCO geopark itself here in, in Morocco, some of the villages just obliterated. I mean, you must have, when you're walking around, um, I've never been to Marrakesh, but I've been to old places uh, like the Cairos and then, and, and, you know, the Benghazis of the world. And when you walk around cities like that, you can tell by looking that if there were ever anything like that to happen, that so many of the buildings would, would give way because they're not just not built to give at all. Absolutely. It's the construction material used in some of the villages that you now see on the news that are rubble uh, are similar building materials and building traditional styles that you see in the old medinas and the riads in the city center. Those clay bricks, they're very fragile. A lot of them are very old and they disintegrated and you can see that as i said in some of the minarets in in marrakesh and some of the city walls they just can't withstand the movement and shaking as modern construction can right your decision i mean i i gather the tourism I mean, tourism is so vital to morocco and of course like many countries actually my dad was in marrakesh when when the pandemic began and and they just had to move everyone out so for a few years that entire industry is shut down morocco is finally getting it back to some extent because people are traveling and returning and now suddenly you have this and i guess what what became quite clear is they did actually want people to stay despite the tragedies they wanted people to stay and to and to continue to spend money Yes, and that's been the same messaging that we've received, uh, obviously, with an international conference like UNESCO. Uh, there were 
high-ranking government officials at the conference, the minister of this department and that department, the king's representative, the local governor, mayors, and so on, along with UNESCO representatives. And messages came out uh, within hours of the uh, event, um, the earthquake, that uh, they were looking for delegates and wanted to confirm uh, delegates uh, from each country and where they were. And as soon as safety was confirmed for the majority of delegates, messages started coming out, basically saying, please don't leave. Right. Uh, please stay. Please don't panic. Uh, we won't be doing the field trips, obviously, to the Atlas Mountains. But please, you know, stay in Marrakesh, stay in surrounding cities and and support the industry. And, yeah, some chose to go and and some like us chose to stay on uh, as planned with some alterations in our schedule and some changes obviously in hotels we're we're not in the atlas mountains uh, today Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, we did go out to the market we did see locals we did spend some money and uh, certainly did make some donations and and give uh, generous tips to staff that i talked to at our hotels that were definitely yeah. affected and their families were affected by this. Yeah, I imagine everyone knows somebody who's been infected. People who you talk to locally, they, they, everybody must know somebody. And I imagine, as always, there are aftershocks, or there have been aftershocks, which can, can be multiple. a scary part of this, too, if you're there. Yeah, the first one, I as I was standing out by the pool uh, at the Four Seasons where we were, uh, speaking to some very frightened guests, and the staff were running around on golf carts with water. Uh, again, a pretty privileged setting to experience mm. an earthquake in a country like Morocco. Uh, I was uh, giving a, an earth science lecture <laughs> and trying to explain to people what right. will probably happen and the different type of waves that are happening now. And we have to figure out how deep the earthquake was and, and where it was and so on. And within 45 minutes, uh, I said to my uh, partner, Guillaume, there was kind of this rumble going over the city and the birds were taking off from the trees. And I said, there's going to be an aftershock now. And within 45 minutes of of the first earthquake, there was a a magnitude 4.8, 4.9. And then again yesterday, another 4.8, 4.9. For some, if you're out walking around the streets and you're busy, you'll barely feel it. But the risk with that is infrastructure that's already been damaged, buildings that are already fragile. People look at buildings and see them standing, but there are cracks going up and down in sections. Some may be superficial. Some may be deeper. And with a aftershock in the 4.9 range, that can still move a building enough if it's fragile to take it down. Right. Not out of the woods yet. Well, John, glad to hear you're safe, that everyone around you is safe, uh, that there is some sense of normalcy amid all this tragedy. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Search and rescue, rescue of any form can be a real challenge. We'll remember back to what happened on 9-11 and all the lessons learned after that day. But rescue teams again in Morocco running at a time trying to find survivors trapped in the rubble after Morocco's strongest quake in more than a century. Uh, 6.8 on the Richter scale, not huge, but it was shallow. It happened in an area near the Atlas Mountains where there are a lot of villages built. The housing there is not built to withstand that kind of a shake. Um, And a lot of people just trying to figure out how to get people out, whether they can still find survivors. Reporter Tom Sufi-Burridge is following the search efforts in Weirgen and that's south of Marrakesh. 
People here need food, they need water. A lot of aid is arriving right now, but the big challenge for rescuers is to get to the more remote villages, right up into the mountain range. We're told that in some areas, not long ago, help still hadn't arrived. And, and that is the crucial thing right now. We also just aren't clear about what the death toll could be in those most remote areas. Yeah, across the country so far, more than 2,800 people have been confirmed killed, 2,500 injured, rather, and there are a lot of people unaccounted for. The UN estimates that about 300,000 people have been affected by this quake. A few areas of concern right now for the rescue efforts, uh, one of them uh, the reporter uh, referred to, which is the sheer scale of the challenge with so many collapsed structures and difficulty in accessing those more remote mountain areas. And the other thing that has crept up in the past few days is politics. Moroccan officials have so far accepted government-offered aid from just four countries, Spain, Qatar, Britain, and the UAE. Uh, Morocco's interior ministry says officials want to avoid a lack of coordination that would be counterproductive, uh, but that's angering some who are desperately waiting, still waiting for help tonight. Well, Josie, joining me now is Dr. Joe Barbera. He's an emergency physician and co-director of George Washington University's Institute for Crisis, Disaster, and Risk Management. He has a lot of experience at this kind of response. Uh, Dr. Barbera, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Having a look at the scale of this one, I mean, if you've been to that part of the world, you just know that a lot of those buildings aren't meant to withstand a big shake, and that's what they've got. And this must be, from your vantage point, this must look like a real challenging rescue effort. Uh, th- yes, this is one of the most difficult um, disaster situations you can encounter. I mean, <clears throat> this is an area of the world where um, where people have been for a very long time and and live in very remote areas. And... Uh, and, you know, you you build your homes with what you have, and so in those areas, they're often built out of stones, um, well, very lightly connected together, or they're built out of mud brick, um, again, lightly connected together. That's all under the category of unreinforced masonry, and and it, and it works on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the, the homes can be very comfortable, they can be healthy, uh, and they can be very inexpensive, but... When you have these uh, types of ground shakes like this, um, uh, 6.8 is a relatively severe earthquake, uh, particularly at the shallower levels, and likely this was a prolonged earthquake. And, and in that kind of structures, um, the, the bricks and the stones come apart and they fail rather catastrophically. So, um, you know, to survive in a collapsed structure, one needs to have what we call uh, survivable void spaces. So, um, so if you look at this versus the Tur- Turkey earthquake, uh, recent mm-hmm. Turkey earthquake, um, those were reinforced concrete buildings that were perhaps poorly constructed, but they had large slabs. Um, so when they failed, they were far more likely to have voids where people could survive. So, so th- this is a particularly difficult type of structural element to um, to uh, to survive if it uh, fully collapses, and 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 then the earthquake takes everything else out. Also, it um, it wipes out the roads with landslides and rock slides. Um, it takes out bridges. It uh, takes down your communications, your power, uh, everything that's needed for response. So. Um, so this makes it incredibly difficult for the local and the national government authorities to be able to effectively respond. Um, so, uh, so this is a very, very unfortunate situation. Yeah, it reminds me, I know you responded to the Haiti earthquake, I believe, back in 2010, was it? And I, it, it reminded me of, I mean, I know a very different part of the world, but some, of the, some, similar, some similarities there. Uh, yes, there were. Uh, although, again, I think there were likely more survivable void spaces in the Haiti um, 
um, buildings, at least in the larger buildings where um, the hotels and others where we were able to effect rescues. Um, in these areas, it's mainly residential, and it appears to be, from the reports, mainly this unreinforced masonry type. Where do you begin then here? Because clearly, uh, in a situation like that, one thinks that you really don't have much time at all, if any, in some of those areas. Well, you, you don't have much time because most everybody in these types of structures, when when they're trapped, they're also significantly injured. Um, um, in a larger void space, um, one can survive for a significant period of time. I mean, well, we through George Washington University did a, a study looking uh, at uh, survivors of earthquakes, extended survivors of earthquakes, and we this was a while ago. We looked at the period from 1985 to to around 2003 worldwide, and and there were survivors, uh, some of which were in in earthquakes where our teams responded that, that lasted up to 15 days, but. Um, many of those were in basements or in areas where they had access to water, uh, and they had a large enough void space they could they could move around. So, so people can survive, and, and particularly in some past situations like with this type of um, structure, the, the survivors have ended up being um, babies and very small children because they, they fit the, the void spaces. So, so one needs to continue to do this. Um, one needs to try to get rescuers, um, ideally with canines and search um, equipment, to these isolated places so they can rapidly uh, evaluate uh, these structures and determine if anyone's still alive. And then there's there's actually strategies one can go through as the days evolve in terms of whether they had access to water and whether they might be in an underground area that's um, more reinforced because of the surrounding ground so the spaces might be larger and, and those types of things. But it, but it's an exceptionally difficult uh, situation for, for those supervising and those trying to get uh, equipment and supplies and rescuers there and 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 um, and, uh, and and then to uh, to try to go through that uh, search evolution. Right. I, I guess I guess the search strategies change uh, as time goes on. Clearly, because they can't be everywhere at once, so they're going to have to have to figure out where they need to be. Right. Right. And and often what it means is to uh, to assist with additional or better equipment, etc. The the locals who've been there for days already doing doing their thing. I mean the. The, the positive side of this is that um, y- y- you don't need a lot of the specialized equipment for these unreinforced masonry buildings. You just need a lot of people who can lift and move and form chains of debris so you can move rocks and bricks and, and other debris quickly off an area. Um, but um, but trying to determine, particularly in larger structures, if somebody is alive under these structures is is difficult. So having the electronic listening gear that uh, the outside and sophisticated uh, urban search rescue task forces can have, uh, having the canines that are specially trained to walk on the rubble and to be able to scent, uh, uh, detect live human scent, and and, uh, and then the abilities to um, to cut through cut through things rapidly to shore things up with the engineers. So it's a right. pretty multidisciplinary um, effort that has to take place, and against against the time element and the and the weather elements.
how often does the politics come into play here? Because we've seen it around the world. I mean, I remember covering the uh, the Beshwan earthquake in Sichuan, uh, not there yet, but from afar, then doing the anniversaries. And there's always questions about China not wanting help from the outside. Uh, Morocco seems to be a little bit reluctant to be getting help from certain countries that it has strained relations with, such as France and Algeria. I guess you've seen this happen before, too. Sometimes the politics gets in the way, too. Uh, yes, I think they can. that can get in the way. I, I think it's also... Um, a significant amount of this is less politics and more just the difficulty of uh, understanding what what the situation is, um, uh, particularly in these remote areas, and and then understanding what's needed and uh, and then taking um, and, you know taking offers, if you will. Um, right. But one also has to set this up against you know what occurred in 2010 in Haiti, where. Uh, the Haitian government allowed anyone in, and there there was significant um, uh, chaos in some areas, and there were uh, organizations and individuals who were not legitimate rescuers, um, and and that was a well understood um, experience around the world. So some some of this can also be uh, government authorities trying to make sure they only allow in uh, organizations that can effectively work in these extreme situations. But, yeah. but yes, I'm I'm quite sure a, a number of governments, um, likely the U.S. government and and the Canadian governments, have mm-hmm. offered assistance. But it's it's uh, you know with sovereign sovereign countries you can offer and then you have to have to wait for an acceptance of that offer before one can deploy resources. You know, there were memorials and tributes all of today uh, for the anniversary of 9-11, 22 years to the day since uh, the uh, terrorist attack on the U.S. I think most of us remember where we were that morning when the planes hit the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Uh, and of course, you know, what ensued uh, was still talked about to this day. Uh, Dr. Joe Barbera is with us. He's an emergency physician and co-director of George Washington University's Institute for Crisis, Disaster and Risk Management. I know that you did some work in and around 9-11. What was your role, Dr. Barbera? So I've been involved with this type of disaster response for many decades. I was uh, the lead medical subject matter expert when our the U.S. government decided to develop first USAID, developed the International Search and Rescue Program, and then FEMA developed the, the FEMA Urban Search and Rescue Program. So I've been a member of Fairfax County, Virginia's Urban Search and Rescue Task Force since the early 1990s. Um, right. So I, I also represented the Emergency Health Care Coalition in Washington, D.C. at the time. So the, the morning of 9-11, I was actually working from home putting the final touches on a proposal for improving our mass casualty care in the Washington, D.C. area when a colleague called and told me, turn on the television, <clears throat> a plane has hit one of the World Trade Center uh, buildings. So I turned on the turned on the TV and uh, watched the second plane hit and called my colleague back and told him to cancel our hospital meeting for this afternoon. And um, and then I I headed uh, from my home towards downtown Washington D.C. to GW University Hospital, where I was one of the emergency physicians and had been in charge of emergency management for the hospital. Uh, so I was I was there in the morning. Uh, I think most of the hospitals were disappointed we did not get many casualties um, because there weren't that many survivors. Um, 
I was activated activated by FEMA, so I was deployed to the to the Pentagon early in the afternoon on 9/11, and um, my role there was to work in support of the Arlington County Fire Department and their leadership in the response, and particularly focus on if if we found any more survivors, their care, and then uh, the, the health and safety of all of the response personnel in a pretty hazardous situation. Um, so I, I was there afternoon, evening, overnight, um, and had been uh, contacted by uh, an admiral in our public health service on behalf of the Secretary for Health and Human Services to see if I would go with a public health service admiral the next morning on 9-12 to, to do an assessment of the, of the World Trade Center site. So I was relieved after working all night, uh, went to my home, changed, and uh, went to New York for several days to, to do an assessment and report. And then I was back at the Pentagon until the 19th of um, September and uh, and then was returned to New York to support the Fire Department of New York uh, through to the 23rd. So I was involved heavily with both of those sites and the third site, uh, the air. Flight 93 crashed where I grew up, so I was indirectly oh, okay. involved there also. So, anyway, so I was pretty heavily involved and lost a lot of um, Fire Department of New York colleagues who I knew very well uh, from my time in New York and from training and working on the urban search and rescue system. So it was a pretty personal experience and pretty all-encompassing for several weeks. I can imagine just being there as well. What has been the legacy of that day for those who do what you do? So, um, you know, in many ways, as I'm sure many of your listeners who do fire EMS and uh, police and other significantly dangerous jobs, it's it really becomes a brotherhood sisterhood. It's um, you know when you're going into these situations, you um, you know you trust people with your life, uh, and uh, so uh, you know as bad as those those days were, what was amazing was seeing the. The courage and professionalism of such a wide range of responders, um, how well people work together, how, um, how how little strife or other, you know, this is my territory type things that could occur, um, and, um, and and just the, the people caring for each other. Um, I think that, uh, the, you know, the search and rescue and the shoring up and the removal of, uh, of evidence and, and the deceased from the Pentagon went far more quickly than anyone projected, um, and um, and bodies were managed with dignity and um, and uh, you know overall as terrible as it was, it was a an amazing experience of how people can come together under great um, difficulty and 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 make the best out of situations. Um, but it's still it's. You know, I've lost a lot of colleagues since then with the residual right. effects, particularly from the World Trade Center. Um, and uh, you know, you still you still think about it and feel about feel like it, it was yesterday. So hard to describe yeah. otherwise. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, Doctor Barbera, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you.
Speaking of being stopped, um, the G20 summit in Delhi is done and dusted. World leaders are back home or visiting other countries, as Joe Biden did. He stopped in Vietnam on his way back. Uh, He was in Anchorage tonight for a 9-11 event, except for Prime Minister Trudeau. You know why? Because he and the Canadian delegation are stuck there thanks to a maintenance problem with the Royal Canadian Air Force plane meant to be bringing them back to Canada. Government sources said a technician flying commercial has departed for India with a part needed to fix the 1980s era plane. Well, two military aircraft have been deployed as a backup plan if the issue can't be resolved. A spokesperson with uh, DND, National Defense, told Global Today uh, that a problem with a component was discovered with the Prime Minister's um, Royal Canadian Air Force Airbus uh, and they can't leave. And some critics were quick to point out that this is no coincidence. It does not shine very well on the overall image of Canada, but it reflects the choices that this government has made. This government has made choices that say defense and anything related to it simply is not important. And therefore, we're not going to spend money on it. That's Rob Hubert at the University of Calgary. Now, it's not the first time the plane is breaking down. And uh, as Janet St. Albert pointed out, first 24 Sussex, now the plane. I'm starting to believe, Polya, that everything really is broken. We should be a little bit fair here because successive governments have let this plane age out in 24 Sussex as well. This has been ignored by by many, by many in a row. Unfortunately, the current prime minister is left to pay for it. He does have a new plane coming. Uh, there was a $3.6 billion contract signed with Airbus to replace uh, the aging fleet, including a replacement plane for the PM. Meantime, conservative were having a wild old weekend in Quebec City. Uh, one columnist put it, as they left, they felt an unfamiliar, unfamiliar sensation celebration. Uh, David Aiken, of course, knows everything there is to know about the Prime Minister and its plane. We've both been on it in the past. He was also in Quebec City this weekend. We thought we'd ask him all about both these issues. So Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, David Aiken, joins me now. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here, man. Uh, I guess we should start talking about the, the Prime Minister, because amidst all this, um, and if as if things could symbolically go worse. I opened The Guardian today. I don't know why I opened The Guardian first. And one of their articles is PM Trudeau's plane stuck in India. I'm thinking, oh, wow, here we go. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that thing, that thing. We've been on that thing. It, we, you and I both, yeah. When we, we, uh, when you travel with the PM for uh, for the Global News crew, now I'm the guy doing it. I've been around the world. I, like I've literally circumnavigated the planet in that plane I think three times, like, wow. you know, you leave flying east and you come back flying from the west. It's a really old plane. This plane was purchased, the, P, the, the, the quote, the PM's plane. And we probably should refer to it as it's a Royal Canadian Air Force plane. It doesn't, yes. Trudeau had nothing to do with the purchase of this. So this plane, it, it came from Ward Air. I don't know, you know, <laughs> our older listeners will remember this great yeah. airline called Ward Air. Wow. And this plane inside, it's just, it's a plane economy kind of plane. There are still ashtrays in the washroom. I mean, think about that. Yeah. There's no video terminals at everything. It's not like you're a Canada plane. Um, when we fly on it, journalists or others, if you want to have electricity to your seat, they literally run extension cords up yeah. and down the plane. Yeah, it looks like in- a base. So it looks like the exactly. It's like your like center. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's a bargain basement plane. The the VIP cabin for the prime minister for Canada's prime minister, and again, whoever that is, it, it's it's the kind of wood paneling you see used to see in the basement of your friends' houses in Scarborough. You know that <laughs> yeah. that that faux cedar kind of stuff. I remember it uh, well. 
it's it's not really much to look at. And but the thing is, of course, multiple prime ministers, and I think including the current one, have figured, well, if I go and buy another plane for VIP service, then you know, people are saying, Oh, there goes so and so buying a plane for himself to drive around. But it's embarrassing for the country. Not think about it. I know it's quote Trudeau's plane, but my first big summit was a, a summit in St. Petersburg in two thousand six, I think this was. Right. It was a G a G eight. And the Canadian plane was the last one in. So this is Prime Minister Harper's is is flying in this case when I'm I'm covering his trip there. I see it parked on the the airport tarmac in St. Petersburg. And you know, there's Air Force One. And uh I think that the Japanese Prime Minister was there and he's got a big seven forty seven. And when the, the, the Prime Minister of India travels, travels with two 747s. Wow. And so you look at all these other planes and they're all magnificent and custom decked out and whatever. And there's our little, as I call it, our little donkey. That the donkey. Yeah, I think I've anyways, first the time, donkey's yeah. grounded right now. It right? Is. Yeah. I think my first one on that first time on that one was with Paul Martin when we went to uh, it was 2006, the G8 in in Scotland. That's when the the uh, the seven seven bombings happened. Actually, that's 2005. That's five. Yeah, that's yeah. Even oh, six. Harper yeah. was in charge. By that's then, right. Yeah. Oh, five, yeah. Oh, five with Martin on, I guess, his last big trip, one of his last big trips as prime minister. So the problem, of course, is that prime ministers don't have infinite time. So being grounded halfway around the world. It seems like a very bad thing for a prime minister when there's a lot going on in the country. It's a bad look. Well, it, now, of course, prime ministers like you and me and everybody else can conduct their business remotely these days, of course. Mm-hmm. But but you're right about that, Ben, in that the prime minister does have a very important appointment this week with his own caucus. That's right. Um, the Liberal caucus is to meet this week in London, Ontario, and the PM is a good, like, 21 hours away. What This is one other thing about this particular plane our prime minister flies on. You know, it needs to refuel about every 20 minutes. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but honest to God, when they leave New Delhi, their flight path will be this. They're going to fly from New Delhi to Tokyo. It's about seven or eight hours where they're going to have to refuel. Then from New Tokyo, they're going to fly to Alaska, refuel again. That's two hours. And then they'll make it from Alaska home. It, it again, it's like 21, 24 hours in the air or traveling to get home. And yeah. that caucus meeting is it, this is important. I'm sure you've heard that uh, the liberals aren't doing so well these no, days. No, the it's been a kind of a tough, I mean, not just a tough summer for that old plane, it's been a tough summer for uh, for the party, period. Oh, absolutely. And I can tell you, uh, our, our, our colleague Mackenzie Gray is going to be down in London for that. And there's a lot of MPs who are very liberal MPs who are very unhappy with some of the decisions that the Trudeau PMO, the Trudeau has made, and they're in a very grumpy mood. They want the prime minister, their leader, to be there. I'm not suggesting there's any sense of a, a uh, revolt, you know, a revolt a, within caucus. Yeah, yeah, not yet. I don't know. But again, that's one of the reasons I think a lot of reporters want to hang around and, and take the temperature. I don't get the sense, and and mostly I don't get the sense that there's a revolt in the offing because I don't think there's anybody ready to lead one. This is not Martin Kretchan, where Kretchan right. at the end, you know, there was a guy named Paul Martin leading the revolution in his caucus. But there is very unhappy liberal MPs, and most of the unha- the unhappiest ones, of course, as you probably can figure out are those MPs where if they lose, it's going to be a, a conservative that replaces them. So in this part of the country, I'm, I'm of course in Ottawa today, but thinking about Toronto, it's all those liberals that go right around from Milton to Mississauga to Brampton to you know Vaughan. Yeah, the, the 905. Uh, down, the 905. They are worried that the Polyev machine, the Polyev momentum is a coming and uh, they're going to get uh, steamrolled uh, right out of a job.
These are our people. This is our country. This is our home. Your home. My home. Our home. Let's bring it home. David Aiken is with us this half hour. He's chief political correspondent with Global News. Of course, we were talking about the prime minister's plane has been grounded in Delhi. A mechanical issues kept him stuck there for 48 hours. He's expected to return starting on Tuesday. It sort of is a metaphor for many of the other things. Of course, it's not the prime minister's plane. It's not his plane. It's the Royal Canadian Air Force's plane, to point that out. But it seems to be an apt metaphor for what has been a very difficult summer uh, for the government. And you saw what impact that's had on the Conservative Party, on the opposition over the weekend, because they looked like they were in full-on celebration mode. I've been to a few Conservative conventions that were far from that over the years. Yeah, I'll start with the end of the Conservative convention. It was in Quebec City. And um, uh, at the end of it, uh, I guess a bunch of conservative delegates from Alberta were heading back to Calgary. They, they were flying on, on a WestJet, and Pierre Polyev was on their plane. I guess Polyev decided to go from Quebec City. He's got to do some campaigning in Alberta. I don't know exactly right. what, but the WestJet people let him take the microphone at the front of the plane. You know, when you get on the plane, yeah. and it's normally the stewardess saying, anyways, and there's Polyev saying, okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to WestJet. And he was having great fun, and the whole plane was applauding him and having a great time but i mean by by coincidence or design what a contrast to uh you know pierre polyev soaring uh out west well you know trudeau fails to launch uh, kind yeah. of a shame but, <laughs> yeah, there's but, a, lot, a lot of metaphors you can a lot of metaphors yeah. but listen th- that weekend there was if, if you've been to some and i of course i've been a lot lots of the conservative conventions uh, this one set a record for attendance it was it was huge um, I, I heard as many as 3,000. Officially, the party will only say more than 2,500 people. But either way, that, it was just a, a, an amazing turnout uh, for this particular convention. It's a policy convention. They're deciding on policies. Everybody was in a great mood. I've Like, everybody was in a great mood. I didn't meet anybody who was down in the dumps about anything. They can't wait for an election, and why not? If you pick your pollster, uh, the Conservatives are up six, seven, eight, nine points over the Liberals right now. In terms of fundraising... Um, taking a look at the quarters since Polyev has been leader, they've been setting records for fundraising, better than Harper, better than Shear, better than O'Toole. They're raising more money every quarter than all other parties combined. I mean, yeah. think about that, combined. And we forget how important that is. I mean, that is oh, vital. Yeah, vital. that's right. Days. It's not like the American system. Corporations can't donate. Unions can't donate. NGOs can't donate. It's it's you and me, just individual Canadians that donate and fund political activity. And there's a cap, an annual cap. I think it's around this 1800 1900 bucks a year. This is not fat cats writing, you know, or a couple of fat cats writing checks. This is a lot of Canadians. And I think then, you know, they're usually getting 40000 50000 donors a quarter. Point is, is they're out fundraising their opponents. So they've got the money. They've got the lead in the polls. And now it's time to pick policy priorities for the platform. Right. And I, I've been using that alliteration all weekend long. Yeah. Policy priorities, priorities for the platform. And that's what that's really what they they haggled out. And again, I've, I've been to lots of NDP conventions, liberal conventions, uh, conservative conventions, and I've seen acrimony over certain policy things. You can spot divisions in the party. Not this time. Not no, once. Social conservatives. They are just completely sidelined. Uh, Polyev owes nothing to the SOCON wing in his party. And basically, the, the SOCONs were there, and they were trying to change some of the party rules. 
that would give a local electoral district associations more control over nominations. They wanted to limit the leader's power when it came to choosing what was going to be in the platform. Right. Forget it. They lost convincingly. The party establishment shut them down. And really the message to the social conservative wing of the conservative party right now has been there's a place for you here. We're happy to listen to you. You can stand up and say what you want to say, but you will have nothing to do with setting our agenda. Not right. one bit. I, yeah, uh, and that's that was what, abundantly clear. That's what you are. I think that's as an outsider watching, that's what one walked away with here is it, the very the one thing. I mean, there were some policy issues that came up around around some of what we call the culture war issues. And those those will mm-hmm. no doubt be highlighted by their opponents uh, as well as others. But one thing I walked away with is. Pierre Polyev is in full control of that party right now. Absolutely. And that, and that is that's that's his big achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that stems right from the leadership race that literally is a year ago. Again, why were they in such a good mood? They 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 really think that this, you know, change is in the air. Let's go. Let's have an election. Now, I don't think we're gonna have an election for two years. I think new Democrats are who would who would get their lunch eaten by conservatives too are in no mood to bring the government down. Both those parties, New Democrats and the Liberals, you know, need time to right the ship here. So yeah going to be a couple of years. But the feeling I had as I, I walked sort of the convention hall on the weekend in Quebec City was very similar to the, the feel I got for much of the convention in 2005 in Montreal. This was the, the 05 convention. This is when the, the two, the PCs came together with right. the alliance to form the Conservative Party. And though there were, it was rocky for, you know, one of the days there, it didn't look like, you know, that there was going to be a spat breaking out. By the end of it, the uh, delegates were united. They sensed the end of the Martin government, and they were right. If there was be a government change, and I got that sense today. The, the implication from a policy standpoint is my sense is most delegates, if they were approaching any particular issue that you know might be contentious, they often looked at it in the sense of saying, well, "What would the leader want? What does Polyev need here? Let's make sure we don't throw a wrench in 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 his ascendancy here. That we give him something to work with." And in any event, I mean, I just want to put this on the record before we talk about policies. Under the Conservative Party's rules, the leader has the final say what goes in the platform. Okay, so in that sense, if the leader does not want something that the party agreed on over the weekend, he can say, that's it, not going in. And if the leader wants to bring back something that got rejected, the leader can bring it back. It's completely up to the leader. And here's the thing. The social conservatives and some other grassroots in the party thought that gives way too much power to the leader, and they'd put forward a proposal to to limit the leader's power, and it failed completely. Yeah. Again, this is a party that says, Pierre, we trust you. Do what you need to do. Just get Trudeau out of uh, out of the job. Just win the election, and we'll fight afterwards. Yeah, uh, David, exactly. as always, thank you so much for your time. No problem, Ben. Cheers. <laughs> wearing uh, red and white check trousers, a white t-shirt and brown boots. It does sound very much like that was kitchen wear that he was wearing. It's thought he managed to get out by clinging onto the bottom of a food van. Police found the van about an hour later in nearby Putney. Here they found strapping underneath it, indicating that Khalif had escaped on the vehicle's underside. That was some of the coverage from the UK. So that was ITN at the end, BBC before that, I think Sky News first. But you get the you get the hint. That was the way this was being covered in the UK last week. Uh, I mean, I, I've always liked prison break movies, whether it be Papillon or Escape from Alcatraz, uh, The Shawshank, any number of them, right? They're great. Um, so this is a real life. This is like a real life one. And you think, well, how did this, how could this have possibly 
have happened, right? It made the headlines in Britain and right around the world over the past uh, over the past week or so, a little bit less since last Wednesday. And the question on everyone's mind is, how did a former British soldier awaiting trial, he's just 21, awaiting trial on terror charges, manage to escape from a London prison, not a high security place, but still a London prison by strapping himself to the underside of a food delivery truck? 21-year-old Daniel Khalif is accused of planting fake bombs at a military base and violating Britain's Official Secrets Act by collecting information that, quote, could be useful to an enemy. It's believed to have been Iran, but that's just the reports. Uh, He denied the allegations and he's set to stand trial in November. So he was remanded in custody um, to Wandsworth Prison, which is in London. I've actually been there, not inside, mind you, but I've been outside. We were doing a story there at one point. Uh, So last week, he made his escape from this medium security facility. He was recaptured on Saturday, mind you, after a nationwide manhunt with hundreds of police officers blanketing airports, seaports, railway stations, even the channel, the English Channel Tunnel. Um, In the end, it was a plainclothes officer who pulled him off a bicycle on a towpath, you know, those canals in London, uh, only about 20 kilometers from the prison from which he escaped. Um, a former head of security at Wandsworth Prison, Ian Aitchison, says the escape was, quote, at best, a catastrophic system failure. It offers some lessons about staffing and security at prisons in other countries, including here at home. But the question tonight, how did he end up in that prison? How did he end up in the kitchen? How did he end up being able to get the things he needed to get out? How did he get out without anyone noticing? I mean, there was just mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. So how does that kind of breakdown, complete breakdown, happened. So as I mentioned, Ian Aitchison is the former head of security at Wandsworth Prison back in the 90s. He's now a visiting professor at the University of Staffordshire's School of Policing, Law and Forensics. He's a senior advisor at the Counter-Extremism Project, and he joins me now. Ian, thank you. Thanks very much for having me on, Ben. I, 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 mean, I suppose he's been recaptured. So it, if we kind of go to the all's well that ends well part of this. But but just from your point of view, the fact that he managed to get out in the first place seems to have been a level, a, a failure at, at a number of levels. Yes, well, I, I think uh, there was a lot of noise and quite a lot of hysteria around this escape and, um, you know, allegations that it was part of a deep state uh, plot. But it's, uh, you know, uh, it's I think that has drained away somewhat. But what it's done... Um, because of that, uh, you know, that, that kind of mystery that was attached with it, it's thrown the state of our prisons uh, quite helpfully, I think, into the public eye because our prisons in, the, in this country, uh, in the United Kingdom, are in a terrible state. So it has uh, allowed the, the kind of focus to be on what sort of place could possibly allow uh, a person like uh, Khalif to, to escape from a Category B prison, which is not our highest security prison, but it's it's a pretty secure institution in theory anyway. So what was going wrong inside the institution that meant that uh, so many human and physical security measures could be breached? And is it representative of you know the, the, the rest of the prison system? And I'm afraid to say it very much is. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the understaffing, the overcrowding, and the very poor morale of uh, many of the people who are working inside these prisons, doing a very difficult and dangerous job on behalf of society. Right. And we see that, I think, all over the place nowadays. Uh, Ian, if you were to walk me through how this works, because I think people have seen movies about prison breaks, but don't really understand how it is that uh, that that this young man ended up not only um, in that particular institution, working in the kitchen, uh, was able to get... There, there seems to be a lot of different things, a lot of different checks that were by might or may have been missed here. Uh, how, would you, how would you describe each one in, in terms of this particular case? 
Sure. I mean, it's it's almost surreal the number of things that uh, failed in order to to let uh, Daniel Khalif escape. So, um, you know, there's, there's a number of questions and there are, our Secretary of State for Justice has uh, commissioned some independent reviews to try to answer them. The first question is, how did somebody who was a suspect, and, you know, don't forget he's due his day in court, he's still technically innocent, but how did somebody who's accused of national security and terrorism-connected offences not get sent to uh, one of our specialised uh, remand prisons for those who've been remanded in custody uh, that deal with that sort of suspect in conditions of much higher security than, than Wandsworth. The obvious place is uh, to a Belmarsh prison, which is a high security prison that deals with remand prisoners in, in uh, South East London, not very far away from, from Wandsworth as the crow flies. So, you know, the fact he was remanded in custody on these charges, which relate to breaches of the Official Secrets Act and allegedly collecting information that could be of use to, to terrorists and so on, um, he, he was uh, he was remanded in custody because he was judged to be a flight risk. So, uh, you know, the questions need to be asked about why this person ended up in Wandsworth. But then the, the, the bizarre uh, thing is that why, given the profile of offences that he's accused of, did he get a job in the kitchens? Uh, so he had uh, this job, the kitchen uh, in any prison in the world, and Canada is in, is included, is quite a vulnerable place. It's also a place typically where, uh, you know, the most trusted prisoners get to work. Right. Very, yeah, I thought it was, it's like a bonus, right? You get to, well, you get for, the, the good prisoners get to work in the kitchen. Sure, sure. And also you know, the most trusted prisoners and the most scrutinized prisoners in terms of uh, their threat profile, because they've got access to very big knives. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it begs the question, why on earth was a remand prisoner uh, given that that job? But, you know, what happened was, just to give to paint a, a kind of picture for your, your listeners, is that um, uh, a, a, a van uh, containing uh, food that was to be used in the uh, prison kitchen entered into the prison. Now, when it goes into the prison, into Wandsworth Prison, much like many prisons across the world, it goes into a kind of airlock. And the reason for that is so that the outer skin of the prison is never completely breached. Mm -hmm. In other words, it goes in through one set of gates, and before a next set of gates can be opened, the set behind them is closed. And then, obviously, with the, the van's occupants are properly screened to make sure they've got the authority to be where they're going to be and they're expected and so on. And there are staff specifically deployed within that gate lodge to search that vehicle because, of course, Ben, you don't want illicit items going into a prison as well as illicit people going out of it. So there already would have been a search of that vehicle. And then, uh, you know, fr from my days as head of security, and I don't think things have changed at all, um, there would be an escort for that vehicle to take it to its destination, in this case, the kitchen. And before that escort could move off, um, the contents of the van would be inspected uh, and so on, and they would get permission to move that uh, vehicle by the control room, uh, the control room of a prison, which, of course, is linked to all the CCTV cameras and so on, which has the overview of all movements in, into and within the prisons would give that permission, and the vehicle would duly be escorted, in this case, the kitchen. The goods would have been unloaded by uh, prisoners, because prisoners comprise the workforce in most kitchens across prisons around the world, uh, and including Canada, I'm sure. The goods would have been taken off and signed for. Uh, but before that vehicle could move anywhere, uh, what's supposed to happen is the person who's in charge of the kitchen party, the catering manager, for example, who may be a civilian 
uh, is often a civilian these days. Back when I was doing it, it w- was normally a uniformed member of staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that person, whatever their designation, would check to make sure that the prisoners that they had in their control were secure before the vehicle moved back into the uh, uh, the gate lodge. And then the reverse process would take place, which of with, of course, an additional emphasis by the people who are searching that vehicle inside the gate lodge before it goes out to make sure that there are no prisoners on board the vehicle. Uh, So what you would do in in Wandsworth is you would check the roof of the vehicle, and that uh, is done because there's a very large domed mirror, or at least there was when I was there. So you could see the top, completely the top of a vehicle. You would uh, look inside the vehicle, inside the cab, and inside the the, the back of this this, vehicle. cargo van to make sure there were no prisoners there. And you would very definitely search with uh, an extendable mirror underneath the vehicle to make sure that there was nobody there before that vehicle would be allowed to leave the prison establishment. So there must have been a catastrophic system failure uh, to allow this prisoner to be able to uh, get through all these different defences to get out of the prison, which does bring into play the possibility, at least, the hypothesis that needs to be tested, that this guy had um, some help. In other words, that there was a corrupt member of staff involved. Now, I don't know that any more than anybody else does, but you know that would be a certain line of inquiry by the investigations that you know have been put in place. And yeah. I've been writing for the, the Daily Telegraph today a piece that... Um, acknowledges the fact that you know uh, this looks like incompetence uh, at best and you know that, that there needs to be accountability for that but i've also um posed the question well why is this level of incompetence and potentially corruption existing inside prisons uh, and i think you know this is a serious issue and again it's good that this this event has has put the focus back on what our prisons are like because you'll find across the prison system Morale of frontline prison staff is uh, on the floor uh, repeatedly through independent inspections. The government is being told the civil service bureaucracy that runs the prison system is being told that staff are fearful. They are inexperienced. They are overwhelmed. There are never anything like enough of them to be able to run safe, decent and purposeful prisons. And when all of that is the case, you're not going to have people that are working at their best. So things get missed. Because I can't accept that, you know, this is due to a large-scale conspiracy involving lots of people. That that sort of thing doesn't happen. Uh, yeah. So you, you could have had corruption involved, but I think what's more likely to be the case or, or the, the major factor in this is people simply weren't doing their job because they were uh, overwhelmed or poorly trained or just switched off. So I think, you know, the surprise is not that this has happened. Uh, once, because the prison service, to be fair, is relatively good in this country at keeping people in custody. But it's not whether uh, you know, why this has happened is why it doesn't happen more often. Ian, this must also have because I think we always look at these problems in isolation. Think, oh, okay, that's you know that's Britain's uh, prison service. Yeah. But I think all prison services are having similar issues these days with staffing and morale. I mean, we're seeing it largely across many work, many parts of the of the workforce. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think back when I was um, working in the prison service, um, there was much more of a vocational sense to uh, being a prison officer, which is actually, you know, a, a profoundly difficult uh, job to do properly and to do well. But, you know, what we had back then, uh, certainly, you know, I remember running a big wing of trials and remand prisoners in, in Durham prison. 
where lots of people who are uh, either ex-forces uh, or ex-miners, because uh, we'd made a lot of um, uh, coal mines redundant in the area. Mm -hmm. So what you were getting there are people who had, I suppose, some life experience. And, you know, when you're dealing with people, uh, you know, men uh, in particular who are, you know, mature and who are serving maybe their fourth or fifth sentence, um, uh, you know, you, there, there's a, you know, a special way of dealing with them. We, we don't go down the American route in this country. Thankfully, we're, you know, that's uh, uh, very high walls and some people with automatic weapons on the perimeter and the devil take the hindmost inside. We base our uh, the way we do imprisonment on the quality of the relationships between prison staff. Uh, frontline prison staff and uh, prisoners. Now, what happened between 2010 and 2016 is we we had in this country a uh, criminally irresponsible and ideologically motivated vandalism of the service where staff numbers were stra were slashed. And all those people I'm talking about with experience, life experience and the emotional intelligence that is required to actually relate well to people and uh, you know, be in control and project authority and legitimacy. A lot of those people went. And then when it was every other metric of uh, you know, violence, despair, assault, suicide, self-harm, went into free fall, the government did a, a U-turn and did some emergency recruitment. But the numbers that replaced that experience that went to, you know, was taken out, that took, you know, redundancy, um, were predominantly much younger people, much more inexperienced people who had not much life experience. So you're not replacing like with like. So I think we've now got a, a position where we've got, you know, prisons that are, that are barely in the control of staff who are overwhelmed and frequently terrified and intimidated by the job that they're being asked to do. Uh, you know, it doesn't help that there's you know a, a massive influx of drugs into our prisons and illicit mobile phones. And you know the drugs economy is controlled by criminal cartels who've got a captive audience, uh, and you know uh, with all the violence that's associated with that. So you know I'm not looking back and with rose-tinted glasses, but I'm certainly saying that when I worked in prisons, particularly places like Wandsworth, Dartmoor, uh, Durham, you know, difficult places with challenging uh, prisoner populations, you know we were the biggest gang in the prison. To be blunt about it, we were in control and when you were in control of of order inside a prison actually you know the paradox is that all sorts of other hopeful things are possible so when you're completely in charge you can take some risks so just to you know, to illustrate the point in the 90s we were completely in charge uh, in Wandsworth prison that allowed us allowed us to bring the Pimlico Opera Company into the prison and produce a prisoner led uh, right. production of, of West Side Story with hundreds of people coming in uh, and out of the prison to watch uh, those those performances. That sort of thing would probably be inconceivable now. Certainly it'd be inconceivable in uh, in places like Wandsworth and many of the other teeming, overcrowded, squalid Victorian dungeons that we have uh, you know, across London right. uh, that cannot be closed down frankly because we're addicted to cheap custody in this country and we're stuffing more and more people into places that you know you would hesitate sometimes uh, frankly to put livestock ian uh i'll leave it there I, yeah well put <laughs> ian aitchison thank you so much thank you well to something a little bit different uh we've all become savvier grocery shoppers i think over the past few years if you weren't already you probably are now paying more attention to sales what we're buying how much is in a package shrinkflation we've heard that one shrinkflation right where they 
where they don't raise the price, but they make the packages increasingly smaller or the product itself gets smaller. We're catching on to some of the, um, let's call them sneakier ways that producers and retailers try to cut costs. Again, think of uh, shrinkflation. Well, how about something called skimpflation? And you'll need to read the ingredients to catch this one when it comes to food. In broader terms, it is the practice of reducing the quality of products while continuing to market them at the same price. Now, this doesn't just apply to food. It applies to lots of different stuff um, from hotels cutting back on cleaning staff, even with the COVID restrictions gone, fewer call center employees, so you have to wait longer to get service, right? Um, But when it comes to food products, uh, obviously not stuff growing on trees or picked from the soil, right? There are some products that are pretty hard to alter or doctor. But maybe you've noticed that some products you buy now don't taste quite the same, right? Or maybe they don't look quite the same. So maybe there's fewer nuts in that granola, fewer potatoes in that cream of potato soup, less tomato taste to your ketchup. Well, that's because food manufacturers are also trying to cut costs without necessarily shrinking the product or passing on the higher costs to you and me. So you get the same product, the same volume of product for the same price, more or less, But it's not exactly made with the same stuff as it used to be. And food producers are increasingly changing the ingredients and products to cut costs with these soaring food and labor, uh, soaring food prices and labor shortages. And that product within the food business, or at least according to economists, is called skimpflation. And because they don't advertise these charges, you're never going to see a cereal box that says now fewer raisins, right? Or now fewer almonds on it. You're not. Uh, consumers often never realize that the different, never realize that the change has taken place, at least not in the short term. Well, joining me now with more on this is Pascal Terrio. He's an agricultural economist and a senior lecturer at McGill University in Montreal who's looked into this. Pascal, thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, this is, a tr- I mean, I guess to start at the beginning in all this, food prices are up, but food producers, of course, are feeling the pinch of this as well. Well, they are. We've talked a lot about consumers uh, going through that, inf- that food inflation right now, but we always have to remember that that inflation affects our agricultural producers, affects our processors, and even affects our distributors to a point. So when we look, obviously, when that happens, uh, they can't. Uh, they can try to pass on costs to the consumers. We've been seeing that, but they don't want to pass on all costs to consumers because it's a competitive business. Um, so they're looking for other ways to cut down on prices, and we've seen it already. We've talked about uh, stuff like shrinkflation, for instance. Yeah. Yes, and it, it, I think it was a first step that they used, and for a while. Uh, we could hardly notice and, and skimflation was hard to see in the first place because the, the new version and the old version of the same product never lived side by side on the shelf. So for consumers to be able to see it is extremely hard. Right. For shrinkflation, right? For shrinkflation. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, so t- we've talked about shrinkflation. We know that. Uh, I think con- consumers are getting a little savvier to shrinkflation these days because we've been talking about it so much. Uh, we've certainly noticed that prices have gone up quite a bit, so consumers are becoming more savvy that way. Uh, but here we come with a new one, and this makes perfect sense as well. Tell me a bit about skimpflation. We, when we talk about skimpflation, what we look at is for a, a food product where some ingredients – would have been replaced by a lower quality ingredients or by a combination of lower quality ingredients to decrease the cost of producing that product and therefore allowing the processor to sell that food product at a lower price to consumers or at a price that as high as it could have been if they have kept the same original ingredients. 
Right. Uh, how, to give me some examples of that. How would that work typically for, uh, because again, I think a lot of customers or a lot of consumers may notice, may not read the the ingredients to figure out, but they may notice differences, right? Tell me a bit about how, how it works and what, how it would work in a, in a typical product. We've seen it for a long time without even necessarily realizing it, but if you look at the frozen dessert uh, products, well, we have those frozen desserts, which are made out of modified milk substances, and we have the actual ice cream. And, and quite often, those frozen desserts, although it looks like ice cream, pretty much tastes like ice cream, is not ice cream because it's not made out of cream. It's made out of a combination of ingredients that will give it a similar feel and taste. And so you could see the same thing with... Uh, some chocolate, for example, where you might have had granola bars that used to be uh, coated in chocolate that are now coated in a what we could call a chocolate coating, which would have some cocoa in it, but would have some milk substances, would have some palm oil, and have some other products. And visually, the product would look the same, but it's still not chocolate. Right. So, so in other words, it's it's really hard to tell, isn't it? Unless you, I mean, I gather you can, you probably sometimes can tell by the taste of it, right? I think consumers are pretty savvy when it comes to figuring out whether something tastes different, but not always. It's not always that clear. It's the same problem we've had with shrinkflation, really, because the new product and the old product are never found side by side. So maybe right. if we were to give the two products to a consumer and taste them at the same time, they would notice it tastes different. But from one week to the next, it's hard to see. And when we look at ingredients, if we ever look at ingredients from one week to the next at the grocery store, we will not remember in which order the ingredients were. Right. So you'd literally have to have the product, the same product that you bought two years ago, and then and then compare and contrast them uh, to find out what the difference was. Exactly. Yeah, and nobody, very few people, very few people do that. Uh, tell me a bit about these substitutes. So, I mean, when we look at the idea of of um, products being substituted. I mean, you've already mentioned it sort of cream for not cream. Um, I, I mean, there must be an impact uh, of that, or do we know even what the impact of using these less expensive ingredients uh, can be on us? Well, I, I think to start with, I, I don't think consumers in the short term have to be really worried about it because any ingredient that is used in food product is something that's been analyzed, that's been authorized by Health Canada. What we can think about is, well, if they were not using it, if it's cheaper, there probably is a reason. So it was probably not the, the highest quality available back then, and probably still is not today. And uh, ultimately, although all ingredients are safe individually, usually they're not tested for their own combinations. And you could make a parallel with uh, prescription drugs, for example. Right. I mean, each prescription drugs that people would consume individually are fine, but we know that sometimes the cocktail of prescription drugs could cause further problem that would not have happened otherwise. And, and that's where maybe, and I say maybe, having all those ingredients together could ultimately lead to problems in the future. For a consumer going in to buy a product they've been buying for a long time, they may know what's in it, but if the products, if, if the ingredients start to change, that's not flagged to the consumer, right? There's nothing on the, I, I've never seen a package that says now less, you know, now fewer almonds, right? I've never seen that happen. No, and uh, it, it, it will tend to happen more with processed and over-processed product. And uh, if I think the complete opposite as an example, an apple is an apple. And we yes. will notice it wasn't an apple tomorrow morning. If we change the fifth ingredient in a product that has 20 different ingredients, we won't notice and we probably won't taste it. And we'll never know if we don't actually have that former packaging to tell us. 
But even then, we'd have to read the packaging because if we just look at the picture, which is what we usually do when we go grocery shopping, right? well, we don't see the difference. We cannot see that difference. Yeah, especially now that the packaging is because it's smaller, the packaging is smaller, the lettering is smaller, so it's become become a, become a vicious circle. How common do you think this is, uh, Pascal? Uh, <laughs> hard to say. I, 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 it's hard to say, and uh, I, I think most of the times it's been used before uh, right. by processors to to uh, I'd like to call it stabilize a product. If you know that you encounter the risk of having a shortage of an ingredient, you try to make some changes to replace it with something else without having the consumer notice too much that the product changed. Uh, but I, I don't think doing it strictly on a price or cost of production concern was something we were looking at in the past. Uh, now, I think it's probably going to be more and more frequent based on cost. Pascal Terrio is an agricultural economist and senior lecturer at McGill University. We're talking about something called skimpflation. Uh, you may have heard of shrinkflation. We've been talking about that. You know your food costs are going up. But food processors and food producers, their their costs for ingredients are going up too. And they, you know, they don't want to pass on all of that increase to the consumer because it's a competitive business. So how else do you cut prices? Well, you look at what's on the list of ingredients and maybe you think, well, you know, maybe we don't need to use uh, maple syrup or any real maple syrup in our syrup. We can just use all corn oil and flavoring, right? Or corn oil, corn corn syrup, rather, and flavoring. So those are examples that you see. Fewer almonds, for instance, in cereals, something else you'll see. Uh, Pascal, when you look at, I mean, I was just reading something on ultra-processed foods, and, and we don't really know what impact it has, and we were talking about that already. But what advice do you have for consumers now? Because I think we've gotten quite savvy when it comes to shrinkflation. Uh, but when it comes to skimpflation, you actually have to start reading ingredients, and not every consumer has the time to do that or has the inclination to do that? Well, I think one good way to go around that whole concept of food inflation we're going through right now is to actually take time. Uh, Take time to buy ingredients, take time to cook your own food. In the past, when we've had increases in food prices, it's often been because one factor was driving that price up. Uh, Now we know agricultural commodity prices are going up, but Energy is going up, packaging is going up, labor is going up. So the, the food processors are facing multiple increases in costs all over the place. So, of course, they will have to increase their prices in order to, well, still make a profit. Their businesses, that's what they're there for. And they will pass down those increases to the retailers who will end up passing them down to consumers. So for consumers, one good way to protect themselves against shrinkflation, against skimflation, is to buy products that are at least processed as possible yeah i i one one rule of thumb i've read is that if you've never heard if you've never ever had that ingredient in your pantry ever under any circumstances it's probably more than more processed than you need i mean there's a lot of products that fit that fit that bill right now but that's the rule of thumb i've been told and, and for a while it was easy to buy processed products because we usually when we have processed products is because you're buying convenience mm-hmm. and uh, with, with the lives we use we were used to have Buying convenience was was just a good trade-off between what my time is worth and how much that food product is, is costing us. Uh, we have to remember that Canada went through one of the lowest food inflation in the rich countries. But uh, whenever the food price goes up, it's somewhere else we have to cut as consumers. And that we don't like to do because we're not used to it. So until we manage to adapt to that new situation, and we often take a long time to adapt because we're little creatures of habits, mm-hmm. that's the only way out. 
Yeah, the, the food inflation in Canada, although as much as we talk about it, if you look at what happened in the UK, I mean, it was significantly worse. I suppose if you're a customer and there's an ingredient change in a product that you like and you notice it because you know the product intimately, um, you can always complain to the company as well. I understand that has been done. I think there was an example of a margarine brand in the US that went from, you know, 64% vegetable oil to mostly water and, and, and consumers complained about it and said, listen, we're not going to buy your product anymore if you do this. So I guess in that sense, consumers do have some power here and companies do have to be uh, cognizant of whether or not they've done too much to change their product. Uh, yes, because I'll, I'll come back to my consumers are creatures of habits. Mm. Uh, if we go back 10, 15 years ago when we decided to start reducing the sodium content in food products, uh, some companies went all out saying, well, our, this is our healthier version. We've cut some by right. 60% in the product. And all of a sudden that decrease was so sudden in sodium that the taste of the product changed and consumers started complaining that it was just not good anymore and they wouldn't buy it anymore. So I, I think change is normal and change is desirable because that's where innovation comes from, but change has to be done the right way. And right now the, the change we see with skimflation is mostly driven on cost. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has uh, been a very interesting one. Read the labels. I mean, I know sometimes it could be confusing, but I suppose if, you, if you're in doubt about a product, read the label and maybe that'll get you halfway there. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Let's go back to what's happening in Morocco, because, of course, there's been a lot of talk about the rescue effort there. A devastating earthquake Friday night, 6.8 on the, on the Richter scale, which is not huge. It's big, but it's not massive, but it was shallow. It would lasted for a while, and it hit an area uh, in the Atlas Mountains um, south of Marrakech, is kind of in the middle of that North African country, which is off on the left-hand side, if you're looking at a map of Africa, up on the north left, the sort of top left-hand side of the map. And Marrakech is in the middle, and the Atlas Mountains are just a little bit below and to the right of that. And that's where the epicenter was. So Marrakesh was hit. Obviously, there was some damage there. Uh, we spoke to the mayor of Bonavista, Newfoundland, John Norman, who was there for it, who's still there tonight, a little earlier in the show. Um, but also, you know, what about all those old buildings? Part of the issue here, it's not the strength of the quake that kills people. It's, it's, the, it's the weakness of the structures that they are in that often kills people. And in this case, it has been particularly weak. So we wanted to get a little bit more of, a, of an idea whether areas like that, I mean, Morocco does not get a lot of big earthquakes. So sort of seismically retrofitting the whole country doesn't make any sense financially. But when something like this happens, it raises a lot of questions about, you know, the whole idea of keeping your buildings seismically safe. And, and then what happens when they're not? And then you have a rescued effort. So we thought we'd ask uh, Katsu Goda. He's an associate professor and the Canada Research Chair in Multi-Hazard Risk Assessment at Western University in London. Katsu, thank you. Thank you. This is um this is a big one. I mean, it, it's interesting to look at it because when you look at at the size of the quake just on the Richter scale at six point eight, I think that doesn't strike one as being huge. But a lot has to do with depth and location, and in that case, uh, this is a pretty devastating one. That's correct. Yes, it's it's a globally speaking moderate one, like mm -hmm. compared to two thousand twenty three Syria Turkey earthquake, which is a seven point eight, like slightly two times smaller. Uh, in terms of release energy, but mm -hmm. potentially very devastating. Right. And that has to do with, with a couple of factors in, Mor in Morocco, right? What are they? What would make a 6.8 uh, magnitude quake so devastating because of where it was and the depth at which it was? 
Well, the depth, of course, is a, is a factor because it's relatively shallow, so 25 kilometers or so. Uh, so so uh, the more energy would be transmitted to the surface, ground surface. But mm-hmm. I think that the major factor is the the, uh, the buildings. Mm-hmm. So in Marrakech, um, the, there's a lot of uh, historical building, and then the, the materials are not uh, seismically registered, and the construction was old. So so that is a, the major factor from my point of view. Right. And there's no there's and there's much less. I suppose there is also in that case, um, less likelihood that people have survived in air pockets underneath what's 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 been uh, leveled because those old mud buildings and so on simply just collapse. Right. Yes, it's heavy. And then like, uh, it would cause uh, a lot of dust. And then so the people, the, the survivability uh, would decrease as the time passes. So uh, it's critical, I believe. Right. I guess in many ways, it's almost the whatever earthquake proof is somewhere like Marrakesh is almost the opposite of earthquake proof. Well, I mean, like the the fact that the you know the historical monument survived since twenty uh, twelve centuries mm-hmm. suggests that the, it's relatively less prone earthquake prone area. Yeah, that's rare, isn't it? It's rare for I mean, I know there have been earthquakes in the past, but nothing quite like this uh, in in that part of the world. Correct. I think the the Morocco is in the uh, is a seismic country, but like it's in the north, close to the Mediterranean. Uh, but this uh, place is more close to the uh, the, um, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, so and in the mountainous area. So it's relatively less prone. I mean, less frequent uh, earthquake uh, zone. What does a country like Morocco then do if it's not particularly earthquake prone, but it has had this major quake? Is it worth then rebuilding in a way that's more earthquake sensitive than in the past or is 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 that even feasible well i, I think that, that there's a lot of uh, modern technique has been kind of created uh developed for the the masonry buildings uh mm-hmm. so it, it's possible to reinforce those uh, masonry building uh and then also we they should uh retain like uh, the historical kind of values uh culture and so on so on but nonetheless um the, the safety life safety is uh, the key so they should build modern the seismic buildings so I get the impression that overall, though, uh, we've become increasingly, I mean, even in the last couple of decades, we've really made some serious advances in being able to be seismically ready. How does that look? You know, for instance, I'm in BC, which is an earthquake prone area. How do we see those advances coming? Is it with each new building being seismically upgraded and so on? Well, I mean, the, the first of all, like uh, the Canada has a modern uh, seismic design code. So from the beginning, like the construction is properly done and then regulated. So that's a kind of the benefit. Um, it's significant kind of advance uh, for re- reducing as uh, seismic risk in Canada. And when it comes to the, the existing building, the retrofit um, kind of technique has improved. So dampers uh, or seismic isolation or the, the strengthening the, the buildings and so on, so on has uh, become uh, very significantly advanced. Right. Because I guess we learned lessons too, if I remember correctly, because there have been some very big earthquakes around the world the past 10, 15 years. The one that really stands out to me always is Christchurch in New Zealand, because that was also a relatively small earthquake by by major earthquake standards, shallow, and created a lot of devastation because of the way the buildings were built. And it's not dissimilar to what we have out West. Correct. Well, I mean, the... 
the Christchurch case, um, the the most of the building collapsed are the relatively old masonry building, mm-hmm. but the debris and then like uh, the potential kind of harms to the other building or the the business center uh, district has been significant, and then that was the decision by the authority to close down the whole downtown area to retrofit the whole downtown core. So that was a right uh, decision, but like, that made a significant economic and in the social economic kind of impact to the city. Right. So not something you do lightly, obviously. Yeah, well, um, I think uh, I think it would be fine. I mean, like, uh, well, Canada-wise, um, the Christchurch type of earthquake, uh, I think the, the Vancouver, Victoria, would yes. be able to survive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that's 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 what I that's what I was getting to. Uh, in the case of something like Morocco, and we've seen we saw Turkey earlier this year, so we've had two big earthquakes. They were different. I mean, the, the Turkish one was larger, and what we saw there was sort of newer buildings with maybe not up to up to standard construction collapsing. Uh, here in Morocco, what we see is sort of your very old buildings collapsing under the weight of a shallow and relative, not that strong earthquake, but still strong enough. Uh, what lessons do we take away then from what we've seen this year? Because it feels like there's two different lessons to be learned coming from the big earthquake in Turkey earlier, and now this one in Morocco. Well, historical building could be reinforced, uh, and then we have uh, such kind of uh, a technique, especially we can learn a lot uh, from the Europe, like, for example, Italy mm-hmm. or um, the uh, Spain, like they have developed and implemented those kind of hist- uh, retrofitting of the historical building. So those kind of technique has can be imported uh, to Morocco. Right. I guess, I mean, how do you retrofit something? Like like an old mosque. How do you? I mean, I've seen. I know it's been done in Spain, and I know they've done it in Italy. Not everywhere, but in places, it must be a, quite the undertaking to try to reinforce a four, five hundred, six hundred year old structure. Exactly. Well, um, the 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 one one thing is the, the connectivity of the the wall. So if the two walls connect together, so then those kind of uh, the corners are usually the the weakest point. So like we could add uh, some sort of support in terms of walls, additional wall thickness, and so on, so on can be added. Or the confinement uh, is uh, the key. So we could have put some sort of wire mesh uh, inside of the, the building in a hidden way uh, so that the, the building material doesn't collapse or retain the shape so that the people can have time to evacuate. Right. You're, you're just giving it, you're trying to give it a bit of give, right? So the building can absorb a little bit of that shock. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. So I think that's a key to reduce the uh, the fatality risk uh, immediately after. But nonetheless, uh, if the building is damaged, then we still have to potentially demolish or retrofit. So significant economic costs uh, would come in. Right. As you mentioned, the, the situation in Christchurch, which was the same. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money in a country such as Morocco, where there isn't a lot of money to spend on something that may or may not happen. That's going to be a challenge uh, for the recovery. So it would make a significant uh, uh, long-term kind of impact uh, for the region. Uh, I think that they have to rely on some sort of um, the international donors. Right. And what do you expect to see then over the coming days? Because I, I, I suspect that we will see the kind of rescue operations to some extent that we saw in Turkey, for instance, recently, but maybe not. Maybe not. I've already been seeing that that there are rescue groups, uh, search and rescue groups that will not be going because they're not sure that they're needed there. I see. Well, I think the uh, well, we um, uh, already uh, about two, two days has passed. So the rescue operation uh, would 
come to an end, and then a more kind of recovery uh, kind of operation will start, like after three days or so. And then the uh, the difficulty in bringing the, the goods and etc. medical goods etc. Uh, becomes critical, especially in the the epicenter uh, region. And also, my concern is that the aftershocks. Uh, mm-hmm. So some uh, relatively large uh, aftershock has happened, but the statistically speaking, we we expect more. So uh, in the coming days, potentially the the moderate earthquake, say magnitude five point zero, five point five, could cause a significant damage uh, to those uh, damaged buildings. Right, I, I guess that's the risk is that if you have uh, as if you have aftershocks that hit buildings that are already damaged, uh, it can co- very easily create more more catastrophe. That's correct. Well, Katsu, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you.